The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. If you have your Bible, we'll be in Psalm 45 this morning. We've been moving through the Psalms as a church for some time now, and we come this morning to Psalm 45. If you need a chair Bible, there should be one nearby. You can find it on page 471. And while you're turning there, let me invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. We stand to proclaim that God's Word is central and authoritative in our life. And while we'll move through the psalm throughout the sermon, I want to read for you one verse that I think is the central verse of this psalm. Psalm 45, verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Will you pray with me? Lord, we plead and we ask that you join us now as we take up your word. Holy Spirit, we need you to open our hearts and our minds that we might see wondrous things in your word, that we might, by your power and your help, apply them to our hearts and our lives, that we might see and savor King Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 45 is an interesting psalm, a unique psalm in what's called the Psalter or the collection of 150 psalms. It's the psalm for the royal wedding of the king, the king of Israel. And it's unique in that there's no other psalm like it. And here's the main idea for my sermon this morning. The king of kings will be exalted forever. The king of kings will be exalted forever, and in his exaltation, the people of God find hope and joy. So the king of kings is exalted forever. The people of God find hope and joy in his exaltation, and those two things are the same thing. I want to open with an introduction or an illustration. Where were you in April of 2011? Not 2001, had someone question me last service, but in 2011, where were you, what were you doing in April of 2011? Maybe you're like me and have no idea. You can tell the general place on the globe that you were, probably these are some general characteristics about my life in that period, but you don't really know what you were doing in April of 2011. But what if I said the wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton? Maybe now you remember, oh, that's right, the royal wedding I remember. If you own a TV, you remember. If you were living in our society, you remember that Prince William married Kate Middleton, and perhaps you didn't remember the date, but now you do. Kate and William were and are British nationals, they're British citizens. Their wedding was a particularly British affair, but the entire world took notice of their wedding. We took note of the splendor and the majesty of their ceremony. We took note that William had on his military uniform, that the decorations were splendid looking on his uniform. We took note that 
Kate, the bride, was brought to the cathedral in a horse-drawn carriage. We saw the thousands upon thousands of British citizens line the streets, shouting their well wishes and waving in support, offering their support to the couple. We saw how the cathedral was so beautifully decorated for this royal wedding. And for a moment, for a moment, the entire world stopped because two people got married. People get married all the time, but the world keeps on going. But when these people got married, the world stopped. And I think if we're honest, we find joy in that royal wedding. It made us happy to see a prince and a princess get married. We agreed that the wedding should be ornate and lovely. We wanted to support and to give our joy to the prince and the princess. But why is it that a wedding that we have no part in, physically, emotionally, nationally, why is it that such a wedding would give us cause for joy? I want to offer a few thoughts. First, weddings in general, but particularly these, these well-known celebrity weddings, tell us that something is right. It tells us that something is right. In particular, it told the British people that their monarchy was strong, that it was healthy, that it was beautiful, that the world took note when their prince and princess got married. It told the British people that their cultural institutions were secure. It told them that their country was okay. Because we don't celebrate those kind of things when we're in times of turmoil. We don't celebrate those, those kinds of things when we're at war. But it told them that everything was okay. And you see, in the same way, Psalm 45, a royal wedding psalm, gives us a look into the royal wedding of the king with this message. God's kingdom is strong. God prom God's promises stand firm. The king of kings, brothers and sisters, the king of kings is exalted forever. You see, we've just come out of three lament psalms, Psalm 42 and 43, and then Psalm 44. Deep laments, grappling with the hardships of life, asking the question of God, why does it feel like you've turned your face from me? Psalm 45 is an answer. And while we do not always get the answer of why do certain hard things happen in our lives, God gives us a look at something that makes the whys unnecessary. He gives us a look at himself and the firmness and the steadfastness of his promises. So before we move into the text of Psalm 45, I want to make sure we're looking through the right lenses. Because we need to keep two lenses, two perspectives before our eyes as we consider this psalm. The first one is this. We need to ask, what's the frame of reference of the psalmist? An actual person wrote this psalm about an actual wedding that took place. I'm going to argue that the wedding is that of Solomon to the wife or to the daughter of Pharaoh. Now, I don't know that for sure, and I'm not going to hold it that hard and fast because the psalm doesn't say, but the psalm seems to fit with that event. Over and above that, it was to be applied to any royal wedding. But the psalmist was writing about a particular king in a particular wedding in Israel in the Old Testament setting. So we need to keep that in mind. But we also need to ask the question, what did the Holy Spirit intend for this text to say across 
history. What did the Holy Spirit intend for us in 2019 to understand and see from Psalm 45? And here's the beautiful thing, brothers and sisters. It's the same thing. So let me give you a word picture. Imagine in this room, which is a large room, a lot of lights. Imagine the lights go out. It's pitch black dark, and you can't even see your hand in front of your face. But then after the darkness settles, I have an LED flashlight, and I switch that flashlight on. And no matter where you are in the room, you can see my flashlight. And then I turn the flashlight down, and you see the pulpit. From wherever you are in the room, the darkness is so great that you can see it. And you might notice, well, it looks to be made of wood. There are three crosses. There's a Bible. And we take note of this particular object in the room, and that's the only thing we can see because that's where the light is shining. And that is the perspective of the psalmist. He can't see everything else that we see yet. He is seeing the king, and he's exalting in the king. But then, mind you, because we have the full counsel of God, now we have the entire Bible, someone in, in the Bible, it's the Holy Spirit, comes in that door, flips the house lights, and the lights come on, and not only do we see the pulpit, we see everything. We see the pulpit in greater detail, but we also see the setting in which it is. We see the fuller picture. And so that's what we're seeing. We want to see what the psalmist sees, but also we want to see what the larger picture is, which is ultimately Jesus. So I want us to come away with two main things, two main points from this text. The first one is that the people of God rejoice in their king. Remember I said the king of kings is exalted forever and in his exaltation we find our hope and joy. And so what we see first is we, the people, or in the text, the people of Israel, exalt in their king. They rejoice in their king. Look with me at Psalm 45, verse one. The psalmist who's a writer, a scribe, he says, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like a pen, like the pen of a ready scribe. And so what we need to understand is that the person writing this, the, the, the scribe who's writing this, loves his king. He loves his royal, uh, the royal wedding that's about to take place. He loves everything about the exaltation of this king. And if it is, in fact, Solomon, he loves the fact that Solomon is getting married. And it's right. And he says, it's literally bubbling up from deep within me. Bubbling up from deep within me. And he says, I'm going to talk to the king. I'm going to address what I'm going to say to the king. And so in verses 2 through 9, he exalts, rejoices in this great king. And so in verse 2, he begins to go through attributes of this great king on his wedding day. So what we need to understand, whether this is Solomon or someone after, Solomon stood in what's called the throne of David. Now, if we rewind a little bit and go back to 2 Samuel 7, we find God making a promise to King David. David has been established as the king over Israel, and God says to him, David, I'm going to establish your throne forever. I'm going to establish your throne over the people of God forever. Now, sometimes we as humans get sloppy with our language and we'll say things unintentionally like, I'm going to do such and such forever. And we mean it, we're well-intentioned in saying it, but there's coming a time when we will expire and our forever will stop in this life. 
But when God says, when God says, I'm going to do something forever, how long do you think that is? It's forever, literally without end, that God isn't going to stop establishing his throne over God's people. And so Solomon, being David's son, sits on the throne that God has promised will last forever. So there's a certain dignity, a certain royal nature that's not shared by any other king in the world. Solomon sits on a particularly special throne. And so in verse 2, the psalmist notes the handsomeness of this king. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's a good-looking man, although it could be. He's also talking about the regal nature of his office. When people occupy a certain office, it affords with us a certain amount of respect. When you meet someone and they say, I hold this office, we give them respect, not that they're great, not that they're not, but because of the office that they hold. So he says, your handsomeness is uh, the most among the sons of men. Grace is poured out upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. So we see the king is wise. If we back up to 1 Kings 3, where Solomon is ascending to the throne, God comes to Solomon and asks, Solomon, ask of me and I will give whatever you ask. And you know what Solomon asks for? He asks for wisdom. In his humility, he recognized that he needed God's wisdom in order to rightly and justly lead the people of God. And so he responds, God, I need your wisdom. And this pleased God, the text says. And so it says that God blessed him with a measure of wisdom that no man before him had and that no man after him would have. So Solomon was the wisest of all men. But we also want to note in 1 Kings 3 that God tells Solomon, be careful to walk in obedience. Because if you do, things will go well. If you walk in disobedience, things will go poorly. But we see here on the day of his wedding, the psalmist is exalting him, saying, grace is poured upon your lips, and God has blessed you forever. In verse 3, he says, gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. This speaks of a king who is a conquering king. His sword, therefore, denotes might in battle. When he straps that sword on his side, he shows that he is a conquering king who has brought peace and justice to his realm. Now, Solomon, we know, is not a man of war, but he stands in the place of the conquering king of Israel, his father, David. And so the victories of David are rightly Solomon's. His splendor and majesty speak of his past victories and the peace that now exists in Israel. Look at verse 4 of Psalm 45. Psalmist says, In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. The vision of the conquering king in verse 3 is continued here, where the psalmist encourages Solomon to take a victory ride. Go out and proclaim your victories to the land. But we need to understand this is not bragging. This is not vain glory on the part of Solomon. This is right because it's a right proclamation of God's presence with his people. You see, the God-ordained office of Israel's king is what brought victory and peace to the people of God. It came through God's grace and God's king. Verse 5 says, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies and the peoples fall under you. Again, the king's military power is sufficient enough to break his enemies. 
but it speaks more than just the ability to break his enemies, but also his power to maintain the peace that he has achieved. Verses six and seven are perhaps the most interesting in this psalm because we're, we're keeping in mind, first off, the perspective of the psalmist. And so here, the psalmist is speaking to Solomon or to the king, and he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And so in the text, the psalmist calls Solomon or the king, God. In the Hebrew, it's the word Elohim, which is where we get our English word, God. Now, maybe you're like me, and that makes you a bit uncomfortable because we're not in the habit, we're not in the practice of calling men God. We reserve that title for the one true eternal God. But when we let the rest of the Bible weigh in on this verse, we begin to gain some understanding and clarity. If we went to Zechariah chapter, eight, or chapter 12, verse 8, we find that God is saying the, 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 excuse me, the Davidic king, which is the David-like king, that throne will be like a God or like God to the people of Israel, meaning that whoever is seated on the throne is to teach the people who God is, how God acts, how God loves, how God shepherds, how God provides. He is to be an image of God to the people. He says the same thing to Moses in Exodus chapter four. God says to Moses, you will be like God to them. And so when we see Moses delivering the plagues and leading the people, he's not being treated as a God, but he is acting as an emissary of God. And so when we come to verse six and read, your throne, O God, is forever, the address is not so much to the individual on the throne here as much as the throne itself. God has promised to establish his king forever. We look at verses eight and nine. It says, your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor and at your right hand stands the queen in gold and ophir. So what we see here is the king's royal appearance and his pleasant smell. He is ready for his wedding day. He has his honored attendants, attendees around him. He is ready to receive his bride. He is dressed well. He smells good. And it's a good picture of this king. And so it's right, as we consider what the psalmist wanted Israel to see, it's right that the people of Israel rejoiced in King Solomon because it told them the monarchy was strong. The promises of God are strong. The royal wedding represents that the promises of God endure. But if we consider the psalm more closely, we have to say that this can't, in fact, be true of Solomon. Solomon stands in this line. Other kings stood in this line, but it can't be true of them. We look at verse 4. He says, The cause of truth and meekness and righteousness... Perhaps you recall that although Solomon was wise and God warned him about disobedience, he did in fact fall into incredible disobedience. And he walked in ways that were against God. And he went against the express commands of God. And so God told him in his anger, Solomon, I'm going to rip the kingdom from your sons. I'm going to rip the kingdom from your sons, which leads us to the question of verse six. Well, it says here, the throne of God is forever and ever. And Solomon's throne did not last forever and ever. And so we ask this question, well, who is this about? It's right that the people of Israel rejoice in their king, 
But it's got to be pointing to someone greater. It's got to be pointing to a greater king who is truth and meekness and righteousness, who is the God who sits upon the throne forever. And just as Israel rightly rejoiced in their King Solomon, brothers and sisters, what we see ultimately is that the church rejoices in King Jesus in King Jesus. You see, in Hebrews 1, the writer of Hebrews is writing, developing this theme, Jesus is the great king. And in chapter 1, he's developing the fact that Jesus is greater and higher than the angels. And he quotes from here, from Psalm 45, chapter, Psalm 45, verse 6, your throne, O God, is established forever and ever. And the Hebrews point is this, that Jesus is the great king over the people of God. And so let's go back through this psalm and see how this is ultimately pointing us to King Jesus. Whereas Solomon stood in the line of the promised one, Jesus, we see, is the promised king who would reign on the throne of God forever and ever. If we fast forward through Solomon's life, what we see is Solomon dies and his sons destroy the kingdom of Israel. And so the Old Testament closes with an empty throne, with an exiled people, and with this longing for a new and better king. And guess what, brothers and sisters? How does the New Testament open? With Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And so we see... We see that Jesus came to sit on the throne that was established forever and ever and ever. Going back to verse 2, talking about the handsomeness of this groom, Christ Jesus is the most handsome of all men because he occupies the most dignified office among men, which is the Son of God. We also see that as Solomon was the wisest of all men, the Lord Jesus himself is, Scripture says, wisdom embodied. Whereas Solomon failed to obtain God's blessing through disobedience, Jesus achieved the blessing of God through perfect obedience on our behalf. In verse 3, we see David conquered through war, but the victories of King Jesus are those of truth. David was only able to conquer men's might, whereas King Jesus conquers not only men's might, but men's wills. The Lord Jesus' sword is his holy word, which the book of Revelation says that he will use to strike down the nations in the last days. We see the Lord's word creating at the beginning of the Bible, and we see it reckoning with sin at the end of the Bible. Verse 4, just as victory and peace came to Israel through God's grace and God's king, in a larger and better sense, eternal victory over sin and peace with God comes through the mercy of King Jesus, God's eternal king. Verse 5 has created a lot of comments throughout church history about the conquering nature of this king. Just as the power of Israel's king was sufficient to break the enemy, so too is Jesus' power more, more than sufficient to crush the enemy of sin. I want to give you some quotes from some pastors that have commented on this verse. The imagery is of a sharpened arrow that's already lodged in the heart of the king's enemies. One pastor said, point blank are Jesus' shots. They enter deep into the vital part of man's nature. Another pastor said, no arrows pierce as deep as the arrows of truth. They produce the most pungent convictions, pricking men in the heart, making them cry aloud for mercy. You see, there are two ways in which the wicked fall before Christ. One is to ask for and receive the mercy of God. 
And this pastor says the second one is to sink under the weight of God's wrath. If men despise his grace, they shall be crushed by his power. Verses six and seven find their ultimate fulfillment in and through King Jesus who sits enthroned over God's people forever and ever and ever. We do not meet every week in the name of King Solomon. We meet every week in the name of King Jesus who sits eternally enthroned over us. And in verses eight and nine, just as the royal appearance of the king on his wedding day created awe in the people of Israel, so too should we be awed at the thought of the coming wedding day where King Jesus will stand ready to receive us, his bride. I have the privilege of officiating weddings and I love it because weddings are, day, are moments of joy. And I've done weddings in here where the, bride, the bridegroom stands right there and looks up that aisle as those doors open and the bride, he sees his bride for the first time and she's decked out in her dress and she looks stunning. And he has some kind of emotional response, tears or a smile that he can't calm down or just whatever. He is excited to receive his bride down that aisle. And she in the same way, is excited to walk down that aisle and receive him. And that's the picture, that Jesus stands ready, brothers and sisters, to receive us in the final wedding day that's coming. And he invites us through this text to long for that and rejoice in that and to anticipate that. But you see, not only are we invited to rejoice in the exaltation of the king, we see in this text that the great king, in fact, rejoices over us. The great king rejoices over his bride. Look with me at verse 10. The psalmist now turns from speaking to the king now to speak to the bride. He says, hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. We note here again that nothing physical is mentioned about the way the bride looks, just as it wasn't about the king. She probably did look very beautiful, but that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is that her submission to her king is a right act of love and devotion. The, the, the lack of mention of her beauty highlights the fact that her beauty is found in how she responds to her king. It says that she is to leave her family, to forget her people, to forget her father's house, and to bow down to the king. Our culture would today tell us that this picture is wrong, that this violates the bride's autonomy. Why should she give up everything for him? Why does the bride submit to her husband? Why is that right? Why is it good? Not only would our culture disagree with the bride's submission, they would even go so far as to say that it is wrong, perverted, that it's sin. But here's why scripture is right and culture is wrong. What Psalm 45 shows is that the bride's beauty, joy, and exaltation are found in the king's choice to marry her. She did not earn his love. She did not deserve it because of her inherent goodness. She is a lovely and radiant bride because the king has chosen to marry her and her joy is found in obedience to him. Her joy is found in right obedience to him. Now, that may sound oppressive, but it's not, and I want to explain why. Because in addition to her receiving 
him in marriage and being rightly obedient to him, she is blessed because the king's marriage is a covenant made to her. And as the recipient of the king's covenant, she has become the recipient of all the king's blessings. Now, if you go back to 1 Kings 3, where God gives Solomon wisdom, we also note that God makes Solomon incredibly wealthy, that he builds Jerusalem into be this beautiful city that people would travel the world over to come and see and to hear Solomon's wisdom. And so as she stood before, before him on their wedding day, she received not just a husband, she received all of that. She received the entire covenant blessing of the, of the king of Israel, God's chosen king. You see, the king over Israel stood as a picture of all of God's promises to them. And she stood as the beneficiary of it all. See, this is why Paul later compares marriage to the gospel, saying that it means to point us to Christ and the church. So just as Solomon rejoices in his bride by choosing her and giving her a new people and a new name and all the covenant blessings that follow, so too Jesus rejoices in his church. And he rejoices in his church by saving her from sin, by calling her out of the sinful world in which she lived, giving her a new place, a new name, and all of the covenant blessings of God that follow. And do you know what she did to earn it? Nothing. When the church stands before God on the day of the great wedding and those doors open and, the, and Jesus looks at her, the church, that is all of the redeemed, her beauty will be found in Christ's work for her, not in anything she has done. And she will say, praise God. And in the same way, brothers and sisters, the role of the husband in a marriage stands as a picture both to his wife and to the world of all of God's salvation promises in and through King Jesus. I want you to listen to a quote about the Christian husband. So husbands, listen. Wives, listen closer. It says, as the head, it is the husband who is responsible for the wife, for their marriage, for their home. On him falls the care and protection of the family. He represents it to the outside world. He is its mainstay and its comfort. He is the master of the house who exhorts, punishes, helps, and comforts, and stands for it before God. It is a good thing, for it is a divine ordinance when the wife honors the husband for his office's sake, and when the husband properly performs the duties of his office. You see, when a man and a woman enter into marriage, they are agreeing more to a job description than to a romantic relationship. I tell this to every single couple I counsel with. You are agreeing to act as God acts toward one another. The wedding day is not the pinnacle of the romantic journey you have been on. The wedding day is God's permission to start building what will hopefully one day be a God-honoring, robust, gospel-centered marriage. And rather than saying, I promise to feel towards you a certain way forever, Christian husbands and Christian wives promise to act in the way of God toward one another forever. You see, the biblical picture of marriage, which is ultimately a picture of the gospel of Christ, is established and set firmly in the pattern of Jesus rejoicing over his church. What we see finally in verses 16 and 17 is that the king's rejoicing is seen in his enduring promises to save. 
Verse 16, the psalmist turning back to the king says, in your place, in place of your fathers shall be your sons and you will make them princes in all the earth and I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. God promises to save his people forever. This is why, brothers and sisters, God hates divorce. This is why he hates divorce, because divorce tells the world a lie about God's salvation. Now, I want to be careful because this is not to condemn those of you in the room who carry divorce in your past. The gospel is sufficient for you. The gospel is sufficient for all of our sin, and all sin tells a lie about God. But divorce in particular, and in this text, tells the world that God can't save. Whereas the Bible itself speaks of God as the faithful husband who does not and will not divorce his unfaithful wife. When we interact with one another more on the basis of how we feel, we are betraying Christian marriage. Because Christian marriage, brothers and sisters, is meant to be fulfilled in God, and we are meant to find our joy in God, and we are promising to act toward one another the way that God acts. And the way that God acts is this. He promises to save his people forever. So in Psalm 45, we see that the king is the exalted one. His exaltation is seen as he brings his bride into his royal family. He promises to act to her as God's king should. And he extends to her all the blessings of being in a covenantal union with him. And in a greater way, we see that King Jesus is God's true king who saves his bride. He saves those who repent of their sins, who trust in him. And he promises himself to his people forever and ever and extends to his people all the covenant blessings of being in the family of God. So many of you are struggling in your Christian walk. Many of you are struggling in your marriage because you're trying to make it into something that it was never meant to be. You're trying to exalt yourself instead of rejoicing in the exaltation of King Jesus. I want you to listen to this quote about Christian husbanding. Because in it, we see both the glory of King Jesus and the job description of the husband. It says, when a husband joyfully bears the primary God-given responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership and provision and protection in the home, for the spiritual well-being of the family, for the discipline and the education of the children, for the stewardship of the money, for the holding of a steady job, and for the healing of discord, he says, I have never met a wife who is sorry she married such a man. In a greater way, brothers and sisters, we will never regret trusting in King Jesus for our salvation. Amen. That's a tall order, brothers. If you're in the room and you're a husband, that's a tall order. And women, just understand, we can't do it. We need the grace of God in our lives for this. Brothers, we need each other for this. Young ladies, this is the kind of man you need. You need a man who wants and desires the Lord. Church, this is why we should do everything we can to protect biblical marriage, because it tells the world the story of God's salvation. Every marriage we see, whether it's our own or that of others, should create in us a sense of anticipation for the day when that door opens and we see King Jesus waiting for us. 
So as I bring this to a close, I want to ask you this question. Are you rejoicing in King Jesus? Are you rejoicing in King Jesus? In your growth group text for this week, you're going to be in Ephesians 5, 25 to 32, where Paul takes this understanding of marriage and says, this is the husband. This is how the Christian husband is to go about his marriage. And the biggest picture we take away is that the Christian husband is to act like Jesus in his marriage. In the same way that the king of Israel was to act like God for the people, the Christian husband is to act like Jesus for the sake of his family, for his wife, for his children, for the world. But this morning, I want to ask you, if you're a Christian in the room, if you claim Christ, if you follow him, if you have been saved through the gospel, are you rejoicing in King Jesus? What does it look like for a Christian to rejoice in King Jesus? In a generic sense, it means a life of faith. It means sacrificing for the sake of the gospel. It means gospel intentionality in everything that we do. For those of you that are husbands in the room like me, it means that as we think about our husbanding duties with our wives, our fatherly duties with our children, it means thinking about how can I intentionally move them more to love Jesus? And it means that I need to think about that in the big times when there's major decisions to be made. It also means I need to pause and ask that question over things as simple as, she didn't load the dishwasher. Because even moments of loading the dishwasher or folding the clothes or doing whatever it happens to be in our marriages, every moment is a chance to honor, worship, and exalt the great king of kings. And a life of faith means that we take the gospel so seriously that we work it out together. Paul says that in Philippians 2. Work it out, exercise it together. It means that like Paul, we say to others, Learn Jesus from me. It means that we say, live the way I live because I'm living a Jesus-honoring life. For Christians, we need to ask that question. Are we rejoicing in King Jesus? But perhaps you're here and you realize you're not a believer, that you've never trusted in the gospel, or you don't know the rejoicing of which I speak. Firstly, you need to recognize that King Jesus will be exalted forever. The text is clear. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And he is a conquering king and he is a mighty king. And there is coming a day where he will finally punish all sin and set all things right. But the glorious reality for you this morning is that King Jesus extends his offer of salvation to you. If you find yourself this morning outside of the blessing of God's salvation, you will not be the bride at the door. But he extends to you today the offer of his free salvation that was achieved through his death on the cross and his resurrection, that through faith in him for forgiveness of your sins, you can find yourself as that radiant, beautiful bride on the last day. He invites you to recognize that your sin has separated you from him, that his death on the cross was accomplished for sin, that his resurrection said it was final and finished and achieved, and he invites you this morning to receive his free offer 
of grace and salvation. Let's pray. Lord, you are a great king. You are our king. I pray that as we have considered this text, this joyful mountaintop text, Lord, that you have stirred our affections to love you more and to know you more and to pursue you more. Lord, I pray for those of us in the room who are followers of Christ, that you would prick our hearts and help us to love you more and to follow harder after you, to encourage one another to follow hard after you, to guard one another against sin, to encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. Lord, I pray for the one in the room who may not be a part of your people. I pray that you would convict them of their sin, that you would call them to repentance and faith, that you would give them the anticipation of being your redeemed bride on that last day. Lord, help us to sing with full hearts of joy now. Hear the praises of your people. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.